Hello and welcome to the pilot episode of Far Away So Close with me, Jamie Gibson. For about a decade, I've been making radio shows about music, I've DJed, I've streamed on Twitch. Basically, I've done a lot of things that you could barely consider cults, but it's always been about scratching a creative itch for myself and hopefully making someone's day, even if that's just one person, a little bit better. There's nothing particularly groundbreaking behind the idea for Far Away So Close other than that for many years the podcast I've enjoyed most have simply been a conversation between two people about all manner of creative passions and despite having done plenty of interviews before when I used to be a student radio person and having an actual journalism degree that I got a few years ago, I've always been hesitant to try one myself. Now that might be a surprise to anybody who's listened to me before uh, because I have put my voice out there for a long time but a podcast is much different to a radio show and involves kind of a lot more, it's a different kind of skill and it's a different way of putting yourself out there as well. Um, and that said, I'm here to give it at least one go, um, because if there's anything I've kind of learned from over the past year or so, is just to be a bit kinder to yourself mentally, like, um, you know, if you do follow what I do for a, sort of a living and creatively outside of my real work, um, you'll know that, you know, I start stopped kind of doing radio shows uh, a few months ago, and I said at the time, like, that's not like I'm never going to do a podcast, uh, never going to do a radio show ever again, it's just that, you know, um, I'm never going to get hundreds and hundreds and millions of listeners or anything like that. And at some point, you just kind of have to be a bit kind to yourself and be like, well, it's been a tough year. There's other creative things I would like to do. And at some point, like, I'm happy to give it one go. Um, but, you know, there's no point carrying on doing something if no one really gives a shit, basically. Um, so, I mean, that's not me being a downer about it. It's just me being honest. And I'd rather... Start this podcast being honest and upfront. I would like to do this podcast and do more episodes, but we'll see. We'll see how this first episode uh, goes down. And uh, yeah, if enough people enjoy it, then I will do more. So I hope you enjoy this first episode. And please let me know if you do by tweeting at JamieGibbo93 or by leaving a nice review wherever you get your podcast. Uh, the name itself defines an idea that started during the pandemic. You know, this is something that I would have liked to have done probably for a few years now, but I feel especially during this time and people doing things remotely and stuff, it makes it a lot more obvious that, hey, you can actually do this to a decent degree without, you know, too much effort. Um, I think people are more forgiving of obviously people being interviewed remotely now and stuff. Um, and at the end of the day, as long as you can tolerate what the conversation is and understand what a person's saying like it'd be a bit different if it was a really crappy phone line but uh you know that's not the issue here uh with this conversation for this first episode i am talking to northern irish dj holly lester who over the past decade has been a warehouse project resident she's been featured in the guardian after a highly received boiler room set at ava festival uh, played pretty much all over europe uh and more and uh, last year launched her own record label, Duality Tracks, and that's Tracks with an X. Uh, to me, though, she's just my mate Holly from uni, who I met on a sunny day in September, nearly a decade ago. Um, and over the years, we would get less chances to catch up, as she's always kind of been on the move. Um, but every time I did, her career had continued to progress. And so this chat from January this year is as much a catch-up for the both of us as it is a conversation about Holly growing up in Northern Ireland, her first experiences of IRB for as a teenager, her moves to Liverpool and later on Manchester, and her current development of the Duality Tracks label from her current home at Belfast, whose first record was released only a short time before everyone locked down. And of course, as a DJ, she has been someone 
who's been affected by that. It's been a difficult time for that industry altogether, as I know, because I am part of it. Uh, but I really enjoyed this chat a few months ago, uh, especially during the early days of what was maybe the toughest part of this pandemic yet. Uh, and I'm glad to finally get it out there. As I said, it was it was just kind of plucking up the courage to go, right, fuck it, I'm going to actually put this out there. And if you like it, great. If you don't, we gave it a go. So yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, I really enjoyed doing the podcast. Um, and yeah, enjoy this next hour or so of a conversation with my pal and very good DJ, Holly Lester. Here we go. start now so uh yeah holly thanks for uh joining us on the first episode of uh, this podcast which i've not titled yet it's very early on you come to me from your studio which i was uh quite excited when you said that yes uh so i moved into this new house of mine in may in the middle of the pandemic not ideal um so the studio has been slowly gradually uh developing and i'm kind of happy with what I've got now but we're still a work in pro- progress very much at the moment I like the idea um you know we're, we're doing this obviously on audio but uh behind Holly uh she's got a, a deck there and I like the idea that it just started off as this uh, white blank kind of canvas of a room and then you slowly started to build up different bits of equipment and stuff yeah this room was pretty much empty about four months ago and I've been very lucky to receive funding from the Arts Council in Northern Ireland, which has helped me kit out the studio, essentially. Um, I've got some new hardware in the form of a Roland TR8, which is uh, basically emulates the old 808 and 909 drum machines. And I have a TD-03 by Behringer, which emulates the classic 303 uh, acid base drum machine synthesizer um also got a new mixing desk a new audio interface i got a new mixer for using with my turntables and i got a new midi keyboard so i'm very excited about all these purchases (laughs) (laughs) and i've just been kind of uh in the midst of setting all this up at the moment um trying to connect all the hardware and stuff I've, i've never owned hardware before so it's been a big learning curve for me and just yeah just having some fun with the new gear um yeah it's been really good it's been a it's been a decent enough uh lockdown this time around for me yeah i suppose and i suppose ironically in some way it's um having all this free time on your hands is good for stuff like that uh like i'm sort of similar like i've uh i moved into a place of my own in july um so like that's been really great and like especially for you know doing stuff like this it's not it's so nice i'm sure you can appreciate just have finally have your kind of own space without having to worry about kind of other people and stuff like that within reason uh so that's why i'm like i'm again uh it's audio only but i'm in this like little cubby hole here of the the bedroom because it's a loft conversion um but yeah that's that's really cool and it's uh yeah it's exciting to hear all that sort of equipment you've been buying i guess is that is that sort of the headspace you've been in with those particular um 
synthesizing and stuff because i guess the pre the preamble i guess for this uh the, the podcast is um so the reason i um picked holly for this first episode was uh me and holly have known each other for quite a while uh 10 years in september which is <laughs> not not fun whatsoever to think about that um but it's true um yeah i think you were definitely you were one of the first people i spoke to um when we because we both went to uni together on the same course and yeah i just remember um i remember being in in the room 529 and like I remember going for lunch, um, and this was in Liverpool, at a place called the Ship of Mitre, and I hadn't really spoken to anybody. Uh, and then I think the task in the afternoon was, um, I think it was the thing with the palindromes where we had to like open a file in Audacity and reverse it um, because there's like some songs that have got like hidden palindromes. And I just remember it was our, our lecturer at the time wasn't a huge fan of Paul McCartney and um, yeah, Band on the Run, if you reverse it, um, he's basically saying marijuana throughout the chorus because he got arrested for it um in japan in the 70s and uh yeah i think i think we had to team up or something like that so i just yeah i just remember like you must have just been the person who was sitting next to me at the time and and lo and behold here we are 10 years later and um what i've always liked about uh mine holly friendship is that like um like we're both passionate about kind of similar things like i've always been on the more radio end of things you've been on the dj side of things uh and i guess like we've in terms of what we actually do we don't tend to often operate in similar circles um like we've you know maybe crossed over slightly once or twice with kind of when we were both in manchester and whatnot but uh but it's always i've always liked it because it's always kind of been a case of um like you moved to manchester before me and um you know after uni it'd be like every kind of year or two we'd end up meeting up um and kind of catching up and stuff and it'd always be fun to kind of hear kind of what you're doing and how things have changed since i'd last seen you and kind of where you've gone and particularly um the last i'd say you know two three years or so where it feels like you know your kind of career just really you know shot off into the stratosphere <laughs> and it's just been, it's just been really nice to see um because you because you know i know how hard you've worked to get to where you are now um for like the past well over 10 years or so um so yeah, yeah that's why I, you know i just thought let's catch up with holly um let's see what's happening what's like to be a dj in 2021 um <laughs> plus with the back end of 2020 um because I know, I know i certainly know i'm i'm missing uh yeah i'm missing live performances and i'm sure it's probably the same for you yeah uh well i can tell you that being a dj in 2020 and 2021 no doubt is not that exciting um which probably doesn't come as much a surprise i played my last official gig in mid no the end of march 2020 so that that's almost a year ago now it feels like a lifetime away and whilst there have been other projects that I am involved in it's it's definitely been very different from what I'm used to things have slowed down a lot for me which is good in some ways and also not so good in other ways um this is something I've been doing as as you say for over 10 years now so it's it's definitely been very difficult to adjust to this uh, new way of life without, you know, the weekly gigs and um, just in general, the networking side to it as well. Like this is how I see a lot of my friends, um, how I kind of manage to stay in contact with a lot of people that are scattered around the UK and in Europe. So it's, it's not just uh, financial implications. It's, uh, everything it's friendships it's connections it's yeah 
it's so it's it's strange it's definitely been a strange uh year or so but i think like most people um i've just had to learn to adapt and try and refocus my energy into different projects yeah because i can imagine it's a bit of a double-edged sword i know like in my case um like you you only realize the importance of having kind of friends locally uh at this point like and I'm fortunate that like I've, yeah, I, like I moved out of my place, but I'm still good friends with the people I used to live with. So, um, you know, I've still been able to see people in person and whatnot kind of over the last year or so. But, um, but yeah, you know, even just people like I don't live in the center of Manchester and I don't live that far out and I can cycle into town if I need to, but with all of, you know, and I'm sure it's the same in other countries like restrictions and stuff, it just makes it that much more difficult, especially when, you know, I'm still working, for example, um, and yeah. other people are as well. Like it's difficult to keep those kind of face-to-face friendships going. Um, yeah. But then on the kind of other hand, I don't know if you've experienced that maybe yourself, it's kind of been a nice bit of reconnection with people as well, um, particularly people kind of on that flip side of things where, you know, you're saying people all across Europe and that like, you know, uh, friends of mine who have like, you know, moved to Canada and stuff like that, who I would have, I've kind of, kind of like dropped out of talking to um, prior to this. And then because of kind of what's gone on and everybody doing Zoom quizzes, thankfully Zoom quizzes don't seem to have made a comeback uh, in, in this current lockdown. Um, <laughs> but, you know, reco- I, I guess making those kind of reconnections. So, um, so yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a bit of a double-edged sword, I think, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Uh, there has been a bit of that, um, definitely. But I think what's pretty common in my industry is you'll have a lot of industry acquaintances, industry friends, you wouldn't necessarily speak to online that much. And it's it's more, like you say, like a, a face-to-face friendship. So on the one hand, you probably aren't connecting with those people as much as you normally would have. But on the other hand, I think you are rekindling some of your more closer friendships and also your family as well which has been really nice like I have been so so busy for the past probably the last two years have been pretty hectic I mean prior to uh, the pandemic of course and it's been really really hard to integrate integrate um, that kind of family uh, work balance so it's been it's been a nice time to spend spend quality time with family basically and I did spend the first part of my lockdown with family so that was really nice yeah one of the kind of first questions that I'm kind of want to ask anybody on this really what was your very first memory of music more than just something like something that just passed through your ears? The, the car kind of childhood memory of, of being in the car and driving somewhere with your parents on some kind of long trip and funny enough Oasis was one of the bands that my dad used to listen to as well. So I do have very early memories of Oasis. Um, also the police and Sting and ABBA, that was my on my mother's um, behalf. Um, and well, just just generally a lot of 80s music as well. That that would that would be from my mother's side too. It wasn't until I was maybe 10 or 11 that my dad started playing the more electronic tracks to me um I'm trying to think what my earliest memory is in terms of electronic music um 
I think it's probably some early trance record of some sort. I think something quite commercial like ATB or or Chicane. That might be my earliest memory in terms of electronic music. But I think when you know I really started to get the bug and uh, listen to it differently than I'd kind of experienced it before. I was probably 12 or 13, you know, when I really started to to listen to it properly and and uh, kind of get sucked into it. Uh, that, that's kind of when it started to happen, I think, if I could pinpoint it. Yeah, it's interesting because like, um, as you know, as a, as you sort of do with these kind of interviews and such, like uh, I was kind of reading, you know, other things you've done uh, with other people and stuff. And um, that's quite interesting because your, did your mum and dad meet in Ibiza? Is that right? Yes, they did. They met in 88, which was the summer, the second summer of love. Yeah. So yeah, you're saying like Abba and the police. I was like, oh, interesting. Uh, was, it, was it more like your dad had to like wait until you were at the right age to kind of be like, hey, here's... <laughs> Here's electronic music. <laughs> I'm not sure. Like, I I think he was probably playing stuff to me earlier than that. But when when I was super young, we liked to sing in the car like most kids. So I think that's why they were playing those types of uh, records to us at that stage. Um, like, I was really, really into 80s music when I was super young. And I still, I still am. Um, so, you know, we used to really love singing along to that in the car. And I think, yeah, I'm not sure if it was always there and I just didn't pick up on it, but it was, it wasn't until I was a little bit older that I started to take notice of, uh, the electronic side of things. Like is electronic music, the right term, um, for what we're kind of talking about? Cause I guess it's such an overarching kind of, there's so many different kind of sub genres and genres of. Uh, electronic music so yeah um i guess when when i use that term i am referring to it just as a i see like a blanket kind of terminology um so he would have listened to breakbeat early trance uh ambient acid house um some techno so it's kind of covering all of those things when when i refer to it as as electronic music and did he kind of keep up as time went by? I think for him, it was one of those things that he was really into in his 20s. And as he got older, he didn't really keep up with it as much and kind of mellowed out and leaned more into his indie kind of tastes. The music was obviously hugely popular in the 90s. Like you had acid house tracks, underground tracks that were like chart toppers. So it was it was more uh accessible then than it is now i would say almost in a way because a lot of the stuff that's in the charts now is is very commercial and um intended for that purpose whereas the stuff the underground stuff that was breaking through the charts was never intended for for chart success so and and there were clubs everywhere in ireland at that point in the 90s even in places as rural as uh, where where we're from in Armagh, there was a huge nightclub called the Met Arena um, and various other clubs scattered around Northern Ireland that closed after, you know, after the end of the 90s. So it, there was a big, big explosion around that time. And I think he, he definitely got uh, caught up in that. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, that whole period is just super fascinating to me because 
um like I, I you know i'm no expert when it comes to the kind of music side of things on 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 that kind of regard but um i was fortunate enough to do kind of a little bit of um research for a, for a kind of uh, project that i did some help on at work um which was kind of you know saying about small towns and stuff was really delving into the kind of uh, untold stories of you know um acid house in the uk and whatnot and uh yeah hearing like places i would never expect it to like uh in the uk like blackburn and stuff being like these like hotbeds of like illegal raves and stuff like that and like yeah them, them being them being handled by kind of the same people who maybe like a decade or two earlier would have been like running discos and stuff like that was uh was super interesting but uh yeah i guess the reason that i kind of um was kind of asking about that is because um like that's that's a similarity with myself and that like i um when i grew up i kind of just listened to what my dad listened to and that's i feel like the cliche is kind of you know you rebel against your parents as you get older <laughs> with the kind of music and other things that you do but like when i was growing up i was like well my dad likes cool music and i enjoy it so like i'm not really gonna go out of my way too much to listen to anything else and it was only really once i left home and went to uni that i you know um sort of broke out of that habit i suppose um so did you ever i get because i that's why i felt i always felt like i should be i should be listening i should be breaking away from what my parents are kind of listening to because that's not cool or whatever do you ever feel that kind of pressure or by that point we just like i love this um and there's no going back i didn't feel that pressure at all i was so glad to have been introduced to this music um it was it was an all-consuming passion and obviously still is so I enjoyed the fact that I didn't like the same music as anybody else at school but that's not to say that I didn't start to enjoy other music that my dad wasn't into um I went through a huge phase of listening to Dutch hardcore when I was younger and drum and bass particularly jump up drum and bass when I was younger very aggressive style of drum and bass I don't think he was really ever into hardcore either. That's something that I that I still enjoy now. Probably not so much the uh, Dutch kind of hard style type that I listened to when I was younger. But yeah, that that wouldn't really have been um, something he enjoyed. Um, also, a lot of hip hop that I started to get into when I was in my twenties. My dad never really enjoyed hip hop at all. Um, Again, I think it's just a cultural thing. Like it never, unfortunately, black music never really had much of a base in Ireland. Um, maybe even up until the last couple of years, like grime is, is huge here now, which is quite surprising because most other genres from England never really uh, made it that big here. And also reggae, I'm a huge, huge fan of reggae. My dad never would have listened. Again, another uh, amazing um, gift from black culture. My dad would never have been exposed to that. So um, he wouldn't have listened to that either. But I would, again, I would say the only real rebellious thing I would have listened to would have been the Dutch hardcore. My parents didn't really enjoy me blasting that (laughs) out of my dad's room when I was younger. A little bit of rebellion then. I 
I think it's interesting, you know, you're just talking about, um, you know, genres that you may not kind of, or music that you may not listen to as much these days, because uh, I don't know about you, but one thing I've kind of found over the last 10 months, and I don't know if it's kind of a comfort, nostalgia kind of thing with, you know, coping with everything going on, is that, um, or if it's just the case of like, you know, there were certain, um, you know, certain music and maybe genres that I kind of stopped listening to at a certain time because I just like heard it too much and I was kind of done. And then it's been interesting this kind of last 10 months where like, um, where like some of that's kind of uh, creeped back in, but in kind of, again, I don't know if it's maybe a comfort thing or a nostalgic thing, um, but it's it's interesting because I feel like, um, you know, I, yeah, it's that kind of thing as you get older, like all of these kind of different things, like you may, you may primarily listen to one kind of genre or focus on that thing, but there's all these other influences. And I suppose, I suppose for, you know, for someone like yourself, that can only help you as a creative person. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that's one of the most, if not the most important thing uh, as, as a DJ or selector. I would say as well that it, it is a nostalgic uh, comfort kind of uh, coping mechanism to to listen back to music from from your childhood or or from your early teens i find that i do the same with trance records um that's never really something i would consider playing a lot of in my sets um now as an artist maybe maybe one or two um depending on the event but i find myself listening to a lot of trance when i'm going through a hard time and it's not necessarily something that I would want to, you know, start incorporating into my music or start, you know, um, start getting involved with now. Like the trance, the trance scene, of course, now is entirely different from from the stuff from the early '90s and late '90s. But yeah, it's just it's just nice and it's comforting. It reminds me of a time when you know there were no problems in my life and everything was very easy and exciting and. So yeah, I I totally get that, but I think I think what happens uh, as as an artist and a, and a selector is that you take these kind of nostalgic feelings and maybe certain elements of these tracks, and that's what you put into your uh, current sets or your current productions. So and, and for me, like my my sound really. Um, relies quite heavily on sounds from the past. So I, I do that quite a lot, but without necessarily um, copying the exact style from that time, if that makes sense. Yeah. Is that is, is that is that a difficult skill to learn, like kind of mixing those sounds of the past? Because I, I guess at this point, like, um, so kind of one, well, one of the things that I was about to mention was, um, a book that I actually bought off the fact that you'd mentioned it in some sort of interview um, a few years ago, which was How to DJ Properly um, by Frank Broughton and Bill Brewster. Um, yeah, I always cringe at the idea of calling myself a DJ because I'm like, well, compared to you, like you, I'm just like, I've selected probably is a better uh, a better term because no. I'm just kind of more straightforwardly playing tracks. But um, but yeah, like one of the, you know, reading that book. Uh, so sorry, I read that book, but there's also um, Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, which has some really dated not so great parts of it now when i've been reading it i bought it in a charity shop for about two pounds i don't feel too bad about it but um the actual historical side of it is like super interesting all of these kind of different 
you know, places across the world and different genres and like how they've all kind of ended up in going the, it's that, it's that kind of thing of, um, I think Edison invented the light bulb, didn't he? But there's like a bunch of other people who all came up with the same idea at the same time and just implement it in different ways. And um, so, yeah, like reading about, you know, like the sound clashes and the early days of disco and stuff like that is just super interesting from an historical point of view. And um, yeah, so I guess my point being is like, you know, when you've got essentially, you know, for even just, you know, Acid House, for example, that's, you know, 30 years old or so now, like when you've got that amount of like uh, time, is it difficult to kind of, um, make those classic sounds fresh again, as, as I guess is the f- sort of thing I'm saying. Yeah, uh, it can be in a way. I think, it again, it just depends on what you're trying to portray with your music. Like, it, it's okay if you want to have a really kind of retro classic sound, like that, that works for some people. But I think it's always good to have one foot in the future at least so if you have one foot in the past and one foot in the future that that works and that's the kind of balance that I'm looking for because I think that it's very easy to get to to sound dated of course whenever everything you're playing is from a particular time period but what you also find is there are very very early tracks which sound as fresh as they did then now so they, they sound equally as uh, futuristic, I suppose, if you were listening to them today. So it again, that's that's just the ear of, of someone who's a good a good selector trying to find those records which still sound fresh today and that you wouldn't necessarily realize were made in the early 90s or, or whenever it is. So we'll move on to the first track that you've uh, picked today. So as part of this kind of podcast, uh, I've, I've asked everyone who's come on to um, contribute basically three tracks that they're listening to at the moment, could be new or old, um, and just, you know, a little bit why in this moment, so January 2021 when we're recording this now, why why Holly Lester is listening uh, to these three particular tracks. Um, but yeah, the first one you picked, um, yeah, definitely, I've you're saying like the that sort of future sounds. Um um, yeah, like when I listen to it, and again, I'm no kind of expert. I just love hearing people talk about it. But it, yeah, it sort of had that kind of slight '90s twinge, but did feel it yeah. still feels futuristic and like exactly. from another world. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. um, the first track you picked here is uh, Dylan Forbes and Hold On to Forever. So why did you pick this track? So Dylan is an artist from Dublin who's uh, he's really breaking through at the moment. Actually, he's had two or potentially three EPs out just towards the end of 2020. And um, this EP came out on a label called Koi Music, based, I believe they're based in Germany. Um, great record label. And this came out just towards the end of last year in November. And yeah, I just think he's a really promising artist. He's got uh, a lot of potential and I always have my finger on the pulse of artists from Ireland of course so I thought this was a fitting choice um yeah shout out to Dylan
did you feel like in terms of you know when you decided this is maybe what I actually want to do for a living did you feel like you maybe had a little bit of a head start because I imagine your both your parents were probably fairly uh supportive of the idea they were very supportive um I've never met been met with any resistance from my parents although they probably at times have questioned what I'm what I'm doing with my life um I think that the past few years has hopefully shown them that it's not uh just some kind of pipe dream um and yeah I'm not I'm not sure what they thought initially whenever I was growing up but I think they they knew that I was very very into uh the the music and it was kind of transcending just uh, a mild interest basically um and yeah if it weren't for for them I guess I wouldn't have learned how to DJ because they did buy me my first set of decks when I was 14. Was it an easy ask or do we like mm, might take a bit of convincing? These things are not cheap um and I didn't by any means ask for anything that was state-of-the-art because it just wouldn't have been feasible for my parents. There's four four of us in our family, four kids. And, you know, if one person gets one thing, then the other has to get the same for Christmas. So it just wouldn't have been fair or feasible for them. Um, but, yeah, after a bit of convincing, they, they did eventually succumb to the request. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a set of Newmark all in one cdjs they were quite difficult um to operate i can't lie um as grateful as i was to receive them they were not the industry standard by any means and i did in fact have to relearn how to use cdjs at a later stage when i got onto a set of pioneer cdjs but it taught me the basics so that's that's all that really mattered at that stage yeah that feels like it's all part of the journey you know whatever you're kind of doing in, in that kind of field like um, you know, when when I first started doing radio at uni, like the, you know, that was a relatively simple mixer and stuff, and and then it's only as you kind of work on more complicated equipment, you learn how to do kind of you know the things that the professionals do. And so you're 14 then, and then was it the year after that you went to Ibiza for the first time, or when you were 15? Yes, I was 15, and I went to Ibiza on holiday with my best friend and her mother. Um, we went for a week, and it was everything I had hoped for and more. Um, though obviously we didn't go into all of the clubs. We did manage to go to one, <laughs> which um, hopefully my parents don't listen to this interview. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we were we were very good children. Um, we didn't drink for years. When we when we would sneak into clubs, we weren't me and my best friends, this is uh, we we were just drinking Red Bull and we were just so happy to be there and be right in the thick of it and watching our favorite DJs and that's that's the reason we were there and we had no interest in drinking getting drunk or taking drugs or anything like that um that didn't come to much later <laughs> <laughs> so um it was very innocent and pure at that stage and that night that we went to Eden in San Antonio. Um, it was life-changing. It was the first time I was in a club. And um, yeah, it was just totally, totally mind-blowing. And things 
were never the same after that. I I didn't look back, basically. Yeah, it's very much the uh, it was like a road to Damascus kind of moment. They're like, I've seen the light. This is what I want to do now. Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it's interesting you say that. I kind of, you know, the, the that first time I've experienced something like that because it must be, you know, as you know, as as up and down as everyone can have with a career and and stuff and like your highlights and stuff. It must be hard sometimes to like, you know, that general sort of grind of doing stuff. And I suppose maybe in the last year or so, you know, you've not been able to go out and perform and stuff. But um, do you ever have moments where you, I guess you can try and sort? Of, you know, if you're having a particularly bad time or whatever, you're just trying to remember, like, this is why I'm doing it in the first place. Um, you know, for that sort of pure euphoria that you had the first time you went into a club and, you know, saw what saw what you wanted to be your uh, life, yeah. I suppose, from then on. Yeah, it's, it's really important to remember that. Even when you are touring a lot, it's still very easy to get tired and to get jaded and to feel less enthusiastic about things so my um kind of solution to this has always been that you need to go to parties that you are not DJing at and you need to go to parties that are not necessarily the genre that you play so um some something else that inspires you and you don't normally get to experience I think it's really critical that you get to go and have those um experiences because it gives you that that rush again and that kind of uh thirst for things and it brings back that love for music and it just refreshes everything so that that's been quite a difficult part of lockdown because that that is one of the ways in which I kind of recharge my love for for music and for performing is is by going to these other types of events outside of my own uh kind of circle I suppose I suppose on the flip side of that you know the day and you finally get to uh to go to somewhere again you'll just be like bursting at the scenes yeah. uh, <laughs> ready to enjoy it yeah um so how long was it after that then because I know you know from talking to you over the years like you would you're doing a little bit of DJing before you moved to Liverpool. Um, so was that fairly soon after the IB for experience or was it kind of more when you were kind of 16, 17? So I guess that was uh, three or so years later. I think I was 17 or else just turned 18 whenever I started gigging at home. And it was just very small, uh, modest gigs uh, in local bars um, that had a dance floor. Um, something that's very common in, in rural Ireland and probably England. So not a huge capacity. And that's kind of where I first had my initial experience of DJing to people. And the music wasn't necessarily something I enjoyed or particularly credible, but I think it's really important to obviously have those first initial experiences in front of a crowd and learn how to read the crowd and how to interact with the crowd. Like those are all still things that you can learn on the, those kinds of jobs without the music being particularly brilliant. Yeah, I can imagine it's probably a good uh, a good sort of learning ground because, you know, I imagine you weren't, um, you know, you couldn't pick what sort of crowd was going to turn up to uh, to those places on a, on a night. And yeah, as you said, like, Particularly, I suppose, with the music, like just learning to, um, yeah, deal deal with and um, when those crowds over, I suppose. Yeah. Um, 
yeah so then so then yeah you moved to liverpool um what what made you what convinced you that moving to liverpool was the place you wanted to go to did you have it there was a few other places that you looked at i imagine at the time there were but really anything else was out of the question um the reason that i moved to liverpool in two words the or three words the club scene <laughs> <laughs> that's why um but also of course uh the the university was uh, a close second in that in that the it's all right you can be honest (laughs) um not many universities as you will probably know offered our subject so Mm -hmm. um the combination of that and the music scene in liverpool was why i picked liverpool yeah what were your first experiences like of that scene? Because I remember the I remember the very first time I ever saw you um, DJ was at the or it was you filming something for the Dance Society. I think it was for a uni project, uh, and we went down to um, what was the name of it? Magnet was it Magnet? Yeah, it's not no longer there. I don't think. Um, but yeah, uh, what you know that first year, I guess, at university, and then starting to dip your toes into that scene. You know what what was that like? So again, when I first moved over, I was playing in commercial uh, clubs, quite small clubs. And then I eventually started to meet people who were into the same music as me. And that's what led me to the Magnet and the the crowd I fell into that uh, ran parties at the Magnet. And then eventually I ended up becoming involved in the running of the party, which was the one you attended. Um, and things just moved from there. I had connection made started to make connections with the guys at Chibuku and then eventually after about a year of flyering for them I ended up with a residency there and that was actually the first club night I attended in Liverpool in terms of underground music it was Chibuku uh, a drum and bass night in October 2011 I think and yeah, I just remember walking into the mask, um, which was an old theater, as you probably recall. Yeah. Um, the main room was an old theater. It was an incredible venue. And I remember walking into that main room and I was just so blown away. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to play here one day. And I have no idea why I thought that or where that thought came from. But fast forward a year later and I did, I opened that main room for Animac. I mean, yeah, from from sort of starting there, you know, 2011 to, uh, yeah, opening for Animac, like that's, you know, already quite a journey, I suppose, with your time in Liverpool. And, uh, you know, w- w- did you ever find it, because I, you know, I've, I find that quite admirable and like, do you ever find it quite daunting kind of break, trying to break into that scene or was it quite, were they a quite welcome, welcoming scene or, you know, did you, did you come up against any kind of inevitable difficulties of age, I suppose, and maybe pe- people with the kind of any people with outdated attitude and stuff like that there's always a bit of that I think especially back then and especially being a girl I mean luckily I didn't come up against too much kind of um discrimination to do with gender or anything there have there have been moments for sure um but I actually probably had my worst experience in Liverpool was playing for the commercial clubs and I was 100% inexperienced and definitely needed some guidance and definitely needed some help at that point in my career. But I would say those, the the kind of um, individuals that I was working with around that time were definitely 
a lot more intimidating than the people involved in electronic music. And again, I just think it's like uh, just not just not my crowd. I wasn't I didn't fit in. I wasn't one of them. And like they they knew that. And yeah, it's harder to be a girl in in the commercial scene, I think. Um, and I think people in electronic music at that point were perhaps more open to the idea that, you know, there's some young girls here who want to learn how to DJ and they want to get involved. So let's try and help them in some way. Between that, I know you were you were going to IB for, weren't you? So did you go both for both summers during the uni time, or was it just the um, after second year? I went the summer in between first and second year, the summer in between second and third year, and then I went for my final season after third year. So I, I did three seasons in total, uh, spanning from four months to six months. <laughs> And that was that almost like a, um, I mean, I'm sure you were having a lot of fun while you were there, but it was it almost like a summer school kind of experience as well, where like, you know, you came back from Ibiza and you'd learned so much um, in that short amount of time that you were able to take uh, into the next year of, uh, of DJing. Yeah, I mean, not even in terms of specifically DJing, I think just on a general life level, those experiences were really uh crucial in shaping who who I was as a person and and I had a lot of kind of realizations during my first season about um kind of pursuing this as a professional career and a lot a lot of those kind of um thoughts about where I where I was heading with this and what I wanted to do and then of course by the time I was doing my second season, I'd made so many connections that I was DJing quite a lot on the island. And that then reflected back on what I started getting in the UK. And it, it just kind of started to build my DJ CV, I suppose. Um, like whilst those gigs, again, weren't always incredible at the beginning, it started to build into better opportunities in both in Ibiza and in the UK. And obviously, whilst Ibiza sometimes is seen as a bit of a dirty word in, in my circle nowadays, I cannot deny how important those few seasons were to me for my for my career and just personal development in general. Is that purely just because of kind of how big the commercial side of the island is now? I mean, it changes so much every year, but I think what we've seen in the past 10 years is a real move towards... VIP culture, um, EDM, like the kind of American bastardization of electronic music. Um, and um, a lot of really commercial tech house in terms of UK sounds, which is something that never really appealed to me. Um, it's, it's just moved towards a more commercial kind of accessible sound. And whilst that works for the masses it's not why a lot of us fell in love with the beta in the first place 
And it's really hard to see that happen um, to the island. There's, there's always been commercial elements to it, but it's it's just changed so drastically now. And whilst the island itself is still so beautiful and such a great place to visit, um, and I love it so much, there's a connection that I just can't explain with words. It's it's just changed um, musically for the, for the worse, I would say. Um, and a lot of people within my scene do uh, look down upon it and see it as a bit of a joke, which is totally understandable. But I I will always return there just just because of the island itself. I think not not so much because of the music. Yeah, so uh, you finish uni and then you move to Manchester. Um, and then so so what were those kind of first post-uni years like in, in terms of what you were doing? Were things kind of progressing in the way you were expecting or were you, you know, having a bit of any challenges or whatever? Because I remember I remember you were like meeting you once, maybe the first time in Manchester and you were, you were saying about like commercial places before and I remember you were playing music at a restaurant owned by Rio Ferdinand I think uh, that's what I remember about the restaurant itself uh, in Manchester and uh, yeah I don't know if it was, was that the at that time was that not really the sort of thing you wanted to be doing or was it and it was just a case of is a, a you know an extra bit of money and stuff it, it was difficult it was the first few years after graduation I I'm not ashamed to say I was floundering. Um, I think like a lot of people, especially in the creative field, it's it's tough. And I was taking a lot of jobs for many years, uh, DJing jobs just to get by and, and other jobs as well um, that I really hated with a burning passion. And I did feel really lost. I had finished my seasons in Ibiza. I knew that I couldn't keep going back and I needed to focus on my career properly. And that was difficult because I was having a lot of fun there and I had a lot of friends there and I loved being there. It wasn't the best move for, for me in my career. So I, I decided to stay in the UK and work on work on music. And I tried to basically find my sound. And that's what I was doing in those in those years, really trying to develop what what my sound was and where I wanted to fit into the market and what what I was going to do and these things take time and I had also kind of been involved in a certain sound during the previous years in, in Ibiza and in the UK and I wanted to kind of branch away from that so there was a lot of there was a big transition transition period there I think um trying to basically find out who I was in in the sense musically and where I wanted to fit in and um yeah it was it was tough it was tough and I think everything after graduation is is difficult because you you you're right in this bubble this like fun bubble where you're kind of protected in a sense from the outside world and everything's everything's light-hearted well most not all not all the time of course but you have this gigantic family kind of um, to fall back on in uni and the lectures, we were both very close to a few of the lectures and then suddenly it's uh, gone. So it's it's difficult, especially because I didn't live 
uh, near any of my family as well. So it was it was definitely quite a challenging time. Yeah, and there's absolute, you know, I went through a similar thing myself and like there's absolutely no shame. And I think I think societally we do put a lot of pressure on people, you know, expected to come straight out of university and to be doing the, exactly the thing that they want to do. And I think a lot of misunderstanding about like, um, you know, you don't necessarily, when you're picking what course you go to do at university, obviously you've picked it for a reason, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's what you're going to do because you're still at 18, 19, like 17, you're not still not really sure exactly what you want to do with your uh, life. And I think it's only really, you know, uh, as you know, you get towards your late twenties and stuff, at least in my experience that you kind of start to feel comfortable with what yeah. you're actually doing with your career and what you, you know, what long-term things you'd like to achieve. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I guess, I guess one thing, um, through all of that time, and I suppose, you know, now as you, maybe not so much recently, but, um, one thing I've always struggled with a bit in terms of my career is kind of that feeling of imposter syndrome. Um, you know, particularly when you've been working other jobs and stuff and like, you know, it's, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm sure DJ might be similar in that, like, um, you know, for me, radio is a career where it's very difficult to really, you know, get to a position that you're kind of, you know, happy with and you can sort of build from, from there, but, and it's very easy to just suddenly be out the door because of, you know, some yeah. sort of financial reason. Um, and then, you know, you back out on, you yeah. back out on your ass basically <laughs> and, and trying to get back in again. So, um, do you ever still feel that at time? Did you have you ever felt that, or do you still ever feel that at times when you're DJing, or are you pretty comfortable now? It's it's pretty common for most creatives and maybe maybe most people in general to feel a sense of imposter syndrome at times, and I've definitely felt that many many times throughout my career, and still and still do. Um, I think it's very very hard in this industry to feel confident and self-assured all the time um things change so fast especially within electronic music uh there's always a sense of trying to keep up and that you will never and there's there's always that kind of comparison to other artists especially in this age of social media it's it's hard um so so yeah I, I still feel that at times and I think the the pandemic definitely doesn't help things because you you don't have gigs to measure yourself by and um you're spending a lot of time on social media to your detriment so it's it's uh important that you kind of step back and and take take into account the achievements that you have made like we were saying earlier you have to take stock of these things because if you don't you will not be a very happy person and you will have no you will have no confidence basically and it will it will flatter your confidence yeah it's interesting because it sort of leads on to uh one other thing i just wanted to talk about before we play another song and uh yeah you know especially with social media and and obviously everybody's had a uh, been impacted mentally over the last kind of year or so um with everything going on but uh yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting for me because I feel like over the sort of ten years that I've known you, and like when I first went to university, like um, this kind of you know opening up, like you know we're being fairly open now about like the struggles we've had and stuff like that, and um, you know imposter syndrome and and just other mental health stuff generally. And I feel like that conversation's developed so much over the last mm -hmm. ten years because when I went to university, like I don't even get ever even us at the word mental health. Um, and you know, I certainly look back on situations now, um, you know, wondering how I might have approached them differently, uh, with the knowledge, uh, you know, about my own mental health that I have now. So, um, 
yeah, is it is it been has that been a positive thing? I suppose like as you've kind of you know carried on working throughout your career and I guess that conversation developing and it feels fairly open now. Has that been a positive yeah. thing? And um, I imagine it'd be something that would have been handy to to have known more about in the early days. Yes and no. Um, on the one hand, the conversation has definitely opened and people are more open about their struggles, which is great. But on the other hand, you have uh, these new pressures, which we didn't have 10 years ago from social media. So, so in some ways, things have improved and in other ways, it's taken a step back in terms of mental health because I think when we were younger yeah we definitely didn't know much about mental health but we also weren't that consumed by social media and things were a lot more um we were living a lot more in the present and we weren't concerned about how many followers we had or who was seeing our posts or those kinds of things we were we were living more in the moment than we are now for sure and didn't feel the need to video everything that we were doing either um so in some ways yeah it's improved and in other ways but it, but in other ways there are a lot more um i guess uh problems there or kind of triggers there i suppose triggers is, is the correct word for for mental health uh, for people who struggle with mental health um so it's good that we have this kind of um these conversations now um because we we really do need it more than ever i would say yeah and i imagine it's it can't have been easy even before the pandemic like this feeling to be be on social media constantly otherwise you know to hate to use the word but you know your brand will be uh dis- diminished because people won't be able to see what you're doing and stuff like that and i can only imagine because you know you're not able to travel anywhere to dj or really do much like it must be even more of a um a mental kind of slap in the face at the moment to be like i need to stay on doing stuff on social media so people you know after the pandemic wouldn't be like oh like who's holly again yeah exactly that's that's a a big problem i think for a lot of artists at the moment um who are who are not hugely successful that is a huge worry um it's it's very very difficult um even when things are normal to feel like you are posting enough and you are staying visible so yeah you can imagine how difficult it's been without um being able to post about gigs all the time and as as luck would have it my radio residency which I've had for about three years in Manchester also ended in June uh, the station closed down so that was actually kind of a welcome break for me because it, it as you know yourself it's, it's difficult to produce and write a program every month and present it and everything else all, all yourself so for a while I was glad that I didn't have that responsibility but then you do start to miss it and of course that is another thing that you have to talk about online so you, you're always kind of thinking these things in the back of your head um am i am i talking enough about things am i you know what am i going to post about because nothing's really happening um so the best thing you can really do is try to keep yourself busy with other projects whether it's like recording mixes for others podcast series or doing one-off radio shows here and there, or, you know, dipping into merchandise, which like a lot of people have been doing, including myself, um, or producing music. Um, you know, these these are the only kind of um, outlets we really have. Um, a lot of people were doing live streams and 
I did do a couple myself, but it's still kind of up for debate whether it's really worthwhile doing live streams because you can't monetize it for a start. And secondly, it's very hard to get an audience on these things unless you're doing a live stream via a big, big platform like Boardroom. Um, it's kind of pointless. So, um, yeah, and there was a lot of the market was totally saturated for live streams in the initial stages of lockdown as well so i think everybody's just got a bit bored of that too um so yeah i guess that's really how i've been trying to to stay relevant and um yeah i guess naturally i am posting less and it's it's nice to not have to post all the time and sometimes I do kind of relish that, that I don't have to be online all the time. And then other times I'm worried about it. So you just kind of swing between between those two feelings. I think I think most artists would would resonate with that. I mean, for the record, I quite enjoy your uh, Instagram stories of uh, walks around various nice parts <laughs> of, uh, of your <laughs> side of the world. We'll move on. But uh, before that, we're going to play your second track, which um, I'm when I used to do radio and I still do radio now and again, but uh, yeah, I'm notoriously awful at pronouncing things. So I'll, uh, I'll let you pronounce this uh, second. Is it Berserkon? I mean, I'm not actually sure myself how this is pronounced, but I'm going to say (laughs) Berserkon as well. Uh, The track is called Azure and Berserkon is the alias of Rosa Terenzi and Fantastic Man, who are two really well-known Australian producers and DJs. And I'm very big fans of, of both of them. So, I was ecstatic when they released uh, an alias project together. Um, and it's also out in one of my favorite labels. So winning combinational round, essentially. Uh, this just came out on the 18th of January. And yeah, I've been listening to it quite a lot. So uh, also touching on what we spoke about earlier, the, the kind of mix of old and new. There's a lot of um, nods to early trance in this record. Uh, a very, very popular sound at the moment, actually. It's uh, mainly emanating from Australia, interestingly. So, um, so yeah, this is my second place. Cool. And uh, if you're listening to this on Spotify, you'll be able to hear the full version of this. And if you're not, then enjoy this little bit. And there'll be links for every song uh, in the description for the show. now and uh yeah so uh, after a few years uh you're in Liverpool a few years in Manchester and then um what I thought when you told me about this the, I think this was the last time I saw you about two, must have been about two years ago or something like that um and we went to uh, we went back to our old uni to uh, speak to the students there and um and you basically told me that you were moving back to uh to home what was the reason I guess for that decision there are a lot of reasons really um I I think my time at Manchester had just really come to an end. Um, and as soon as my tenancy finished with the house I was in in Manchester, I 
decided this is it I'm going to move home because I finally have an agent and he's getting me a lot of gigs in Europe and further afield um it's regular I don't need to necessarily do so many bar gigs now and I can go home and spend some time with my family and I wanted to save up for a house that didn't necessarily happen in that order I I wanted to save up for a house and uh learn how to drive so I did learn how to drive that was ticked off and I wanted to start a record label that was ticked off uh so the house saving kind of fell fell last and that's something still in progress um so but but getting there and the place that I live in in Belfast thankfully is much cheaper than other European cities so I'm, I'm quite lucky in that sense and I do definitely miss being in bigger cities and just uh miss being part of the bigger uh like music community I suppose um but considering what's happened in the last year I think this is the best decision I could have made in hindsight um living in a city like Manchester or London or Berlin which was another idea of mine in the pandemic would have been probably uh catastrophic to be honest for me <laughs> um so financially and in terms of mental health I I don't think I would have coped very well so I am pretty glad I made that decision to move home and I have managed to take off at least two of the things that I wanted to save for um and I am just kind of seeing how it goes. Like I still have uh, ideas to live in Berlin for a while. It would definitely only be for a short stint. I don't think I could live in Berlin permanently. It's been really nice to spend time with my Irish family here um, and, and to see friends of mine that I haven't really spent time with uh, probably in, in years. Um, like my best friend that we were uh, talking about briefly earlier, um, she had lived on and off in America for years and nice so happens that we both live in Ireland at the same time which is so nice because we haven't lived close to each other since I was 18 so so there have been some you know huge positives as well I've had a lot of support from the Arts Council of Northern Ireland since I moved home as well which has been uh, hugely helpful and I don't think I would have had the same support um, if I were based in England, for example. So um, I think people here, uh, they really value my contribution to the, the scene here and they um, really want to help me um, push further with things here. So that's, so it's nice. It's nice to, to be a part of, part of this community as, as small as it is. Yeah, I mean, that's great to hear, particularly, you know, with the, um, you know, the funding you've received. And yeah, um, I imagine one of the challenges for, you know, your your sort of community and industry in general must be like, and even post pandemic, I imagine, is like the kind of the attitude and treatment of nightclub life in different countries must as differs, you know, I imagine uh, vastly in the support that you would have been getting. So, um, you know, I can imagine is one of the challenges going to be like, you know, if you're hopping all over the place when you get back and like, you know, when things are slowly starting to get back to normal, like some, you know, you might not be able to actually go and DJ at some countries or places because, you know, <laughs> the the clubs might not be there or, uh, or, you know, they're still closed or stuff like that. Um, but, you know, it's like I said, good to hear that, you know, you're uh, hopefully getting the support that you need at the moment. Yeah, I'm quite, I'm quite lucky in that way. I've been, I've been supported by the, the Arts Council, as I said, and, 
I've received other government support too. So I'm I'm not uh, entirely shitting it as I was in the early stages of the pandemic. Um, so so yeah, I mean, obviously you will always have those fears and worries, but I think you have to try and focus on the present moment as much as possible in, in these situations. And if things are are looking okay at the moment, then you know that's that's all you, you can really go off and there's no point in trying to hypothesize about what's going to happen in the future there's a lot of concerns like like you mentioned about clubs making it and promoters making it through this but on the other hand you also will have a lot of people who have worked this entire pandemic and have a lot of savings and want to start a club night or open a nightclub or so there's going to be it's, it's going to come from somewhere, you know, it might not be the same uh, sources, but I think that there will be a lot of um, innovation when things come back around. It's open anyway. You mentioned it before, uh, duality tracks, that is the big thing since uh, I last, you know, spoke to you properly that I'm like, wow, Holly started a label. Uh, that's that's amazing. What made you want to uh, set up your own label? You said it was a goal alongside learning to drive. Um, I imagine it was probably slightly higher up on the totem pole than learning to drive, but uh, yeah. but you've done it now, haven't it? And it's uh, is it about a year and a bit now that you've been running the label? Um, it's actually going to be a year in March, officially. I, I launched the label on Boxing Night last year, but we didn't actually... I say we, it's just me. Um, I didn't actually release the first record um, till March. So technically it's around a year. Um, yeah, I wanted to run a label for as long as I can remember. I think that was one of my kind of dreams when I was a teenager. Um, one of the many things that I wanted to take off uh, was to run my own record label. And I was just waiting for a long time for the right moment and for the right idea and for the right concept. And things just kind of fell into place, I guess, um, very, very quickly. And like the idea for the label and the name for the label pretty much happened in the space of a few days. And after that, it was just a case of finding the right people and the right music to contribute. Um, because the the idea is quite specific, really. I, I want to have a balance of of all genders basically on each release as someone who is female uh, minority gender in, in the industry it's it's quite important to me that I give representation to other genders um, outside of the male gender which dominates the industry so um, so that's kind of the idea um, with with the label and um, the first release we had a young producer another producer from Dublin very very promising a producer called Fiofa and I love his music. I've loved it for a very, very long time. And he sent me some demos one day and I just knew that I wanted to release them. And so we worked together on, on sorting that out. And then I contacted a female producer to do the remix, uh, Violet, her name is from Portugal. And I've been a fan of hers for a couple of years now too. She runs her own label called Naive Tracks, which is a pretty big respect label in my circles and um yeah it all just came together after a while um some back and forth with the design like the, a lot of learning curves of course in in the first few months as i would never done this before so so yeah that came out in march and the record 
has done really well, given that a week afterwards, the world changed as we knew it. I was terrified at that point because I had just embarked on this huge adventure. I put like about two or three grand into starting a label. And then suddenly there's a pandemic <laughs> and I'm wondering how I'm going to sell all these records. Um, but they have been selling and ticking along and it's been fine. And it's done as well as I could have hoped for in the, in the middle of a pandemic. And I'm really happy with how it's went. The The next release is a guy from LA goes under the alias of, of Chromie. He's been great to work with so far and very understanding. And he's still really keen to keep vinyl. So we're, we're just going to wait. It must also, I guess, industry-wide, it must be difficult to kind of um, even schedule releases right now because especially, you know, electronic music, it's so... Like I imagine it's so important for that to be heard in clubs and stuff like that. And you can't, you just can't do that at the moment. That's definitely a concern and something which we are discussing um, with the guys who are doing my press at the moment. Um, we are trying to focus basically on radio play. And that is the angle that we are kind of coming at as it realistically we, we won't really get any club play unless it's in Australia or New Zealand. So uh, we, we're also going to be targeting DJs from Australia and New Zealand um, quite a bit in the hope that we can get some videos or, or something from parties over there. Um, but yeah, it's it's a shame because the, the release is very club ready. It's like, it's something I know would do very, very well. Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't... <laughs> I feel like I don't want to be too, we don't want to be too much of a downer here. Like, you know, obviously it's been a difficult year for everybody in, in various industries, but, you know, especially, um, you know, very creative industries have gone through a lot of shit this year uh, and last, well, started this year and last, um, but, you know, to try and, you know, be a little bit more hopeful, you know, you know, the vaccine, you know, is there are vaccines now, things are starting to roll out, you know, we are, we will eventually, you know, even if we're delayed, we'll get to a point where hopefully things will be back to normal. So, you know, I guess, you know, what what are you looking forward to after this? You know, is there anything, you know, you were planning to do before this that you, you know, might uh, do differently now or anything new that you like, once this is over, I want to, you know, achieve this goal or whatever? Yeah, well, there's quite a lot of shows that are, that are either rescheduled or um, in the process of getting scheduled for mid 2021 late 2021 like whether whether this actually ends up going ahead or not is a different story but um there's a lot of nice festivals getting rescheduled for this year uh for example park life and ava here in belfast ava in glasgow um there's also a big one in august all being well um with shine here in belfast at custom house square that's a um an outdoor event about five thousand people um so that's going to be really fun um and aside from that i am just trying to work on my own music production um with with my new hardware and trying to yeah navigate that and see what comes out <laughs> well we've got one more track to play on this podcast but uh yeah thanks so much holly for uh for coming on i've always found your story and career and stuff uh 
you know, super interesting and fascinating. And it's always, it's like, I, again, I, I just like hearing people's interesting stories and it, like, it doesn't necessarily matter. Like, you know, as I said earlier on in the show, like we're kind of from similar circles, but you know, I'm, you know, I'm not in electronic music at all. And, um, but I love hearing people talk passionately about, you know, what they do and stuff. So, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's great to hear, you know, what, what you've been doing over the last 10 years, I suppose. Oh, that was it. I have one more question for you, actually. If you could go back to, uh, see 2010 or 2011 Holly, uh, what would you tell her? I would say, uh, start learning how to produce now. (laughs) (laughs) That's my advice to my former self. And maybe, uh, go easy on the partying. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Holly. All right. Uh, yeah, we're going to have one more track now. Um, by Chromie from LA. This is called Bloom In. Thanks again, Holly. And uh, yeah, see you soon. Thank you for having me. Bye. So there we go, Holly Lester, our first and maybe only guest on Far Away So Close. But that's up to you. Uh, if you enjoyed this pilot podcast, then please do let me know via Twitter at JamieGibbo93 or by sharing from wherever you get your podcasts. It's uh, As I said earlier, it's certainly something I enjoy doing, but uh, as I said, if there's one thing I've learned during this past year, it's that you really need to be fair to yourself mentally. Uh, and there's a lot of creative things I like to do. So um, I would like to do this, but it does take a lot of time and effort to put together a research for a podcast, perhaps more than a radio show if you want to do it well. Uh, And even if it is a conversation with someone like Holly, who I already know, who I've known for a long time, doesn't necessarily mean I know every little single thing about her or I've asked her every little single thing thing about her. So, you know, you got to put the effort in. And if you're not going to get a big response from that at some point, is it really worth the effort? We'll see. Anyway, my hope is to interview more people I find interesting, whether that is mainly through music or other things entirely, and I hope you'll come along for the ride with me. Thanks again to Holly. There's links to any of the music you heard in the description for this podcast, and also thanks very much to my other pal, Andy McPhee, who provides the music you hear now, as well as the intro theme, any other original music you hear on the show, and kind of anything original you may have even heard on the radio show over the past few years. He is a very, very kind man who... uh, I'm very fortunate will make things for me for free. Um, but you can find his music on Bandcamp at andymcfee.bandcamp.com. That is Mac, M-A-C. So, uh, yeah, go look him up on there. It'll also be in the description. And buy his music if you enjoy uh, ambient stuff and whatnot and text- textural stuff. Is that a word? Uh, it's good. He's good. He's good, at mu- he's good at doing the music thing. So, yeah, uh, go support him if you can. Um, but until next time, though, stay safe. And yeah, I hope to see you again soon. Uh, That was the pilot episode, A Far Away, So Close.